Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. There's a lot of this research on issue by issue. And so fast forwarding, just going uh, to the last couple elections, it's not a new story. There's not been any kind of realignment in this direction. Economics was a poor predictor of how you voted before 2016. It was a poor predictor in 2016, and it was still a poor predictor in 2020 from what we know, specifically to the claim that Republicans are the working class party, which is said by people like Rubio, people like Howley, people like Cruz, who are trying to will this thing into existence. But if you have to pick out one party as the working class party who won under 50,000 a year, it was actually the Democrats. Now that's correlated with race and all kinds of things. So they win more blacks and Hispanics. but Republicans aren't even necessarily the white working class party. Thanks for tuning in to the season finale of the realignment for 2020. We are going to air this episode and a special bonus tomorrow and then close up shop until January 2021. We are very excited to end this season with Richard Hanania. He's the president of the Center for Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Try saying that five times fast. Brand new organization, which tries to use data to test political assumptions. Now, Richard came across my radar because he wrote an interesting new study with a guy named George Hawley, where they look and test the assumption that Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because of economic concerns. Basically, the thesis of the show from the very beginning was that Trump's election in 2016, presaged by Brexit, was the beginning of a political economic realignment against free market fundamentalism, against the traditional conservative orthodoxy within the Republican Party, within the conservative party in the UK. You've heard it all here before. We've spent hours and hours discussing that thesis. Well, Richard tested that assumption with some interesting new data. He says, nope, literally none of that happened. In fact, he points to cultural concerns as the chief and driving force behind Donald Trump's election in 2016, behind him winning the GOP primary in 2016, and with the limited data that is available for 2020, that the increase in the number of his votes are driven from cultural concerns rather than they are economic concerns. Frankly, it's troubling uh, for somebody like me who's thought and believed the opposite, but it's really important to test your assumptions. And frankly, I basically believe Richard uh, at this point. So this episode is really Marshall and I grappling with this new data that Richard has put in front of us, with the theses that we have put forward, testing each of them and seeing whether they stand the test of time. So if you're on the populist right, if you're on the populist left, you need to listen to this episode so that you understand whether what you really believe about how politics works is actually true. That's exactly it. What makes Richard's perspective so interesting is that he's coming from this perspective as someone on the right. This isn't a typical, hey, it turns out everything right. about Donald Trump in 2016 was about racism, which is a take we've heard for a couple <laughs> of years. Instead, his point is, I'm sympathetic to people who advocate for industrial policy. That's the Orrin Cass episode or the Julius Crane episode that y'all have listened to. People who think that libertarianism, as is expressed in DC think tanks, is out of date. He's sympathetic to those critiques. 
His point, though, is if you actually look at the way Republican voters are voting, they're not voting on that idea. They're voting on Donald Trump's attacks against political correctness, the centrality of immigration to his arguments. So this is a really important argument that people like us really have to think about because it means that you can still advance industrial policy. You can still say, hey, the right to become more comfortable with working with the state and that limited government, especially during the year of COVID-19, isn't the right approach. But his point is that that those policy positions are not supported by the electoral political theory that we thought it was. So a great way to gut check us as we go out of the year. And it's also an important note to Sagar's point that we want to always check ourselves and not just rehash narratives for the next several years that may have been disproven by data, but also by his really interesting examples. Yeah, I mean, look, I wish it wasn't true, but I think it is. And if I want to see the things that I want come into reality, I'm not going to do it the way that I previously thought I would. That's an important lesson to learn. Yeah, and this serves as the perfect counterpoint to the bonus episode that we're airing tomorrow. It's with Jennifer Harris, who is at the Hewlett Foundation. She's launching a $50 million project to explore what is the future after neoliberalism. She and I discussed the fact that much of the discord and apprehension that all of us feel in our political system right now stems from the fact that the ideas that made everything work from the 1980s to the 2010s just aren't valid anymore. No one agrees to the consensus. This isn't the 1980s. This isn't the 1990s. So what she is trying to do is chart a path forward that we can all agree with to a certain degree. So as you listen to this episode and tomorrow's episode, really consider that Richard's argument is that national populism on the right from an electoral perspective is not going to be that unifying path forward. It could be the correct policy procedure, but we aren't going to see in his view a Republican party that emerges in 2021 that's motivated primarily by economics, trade, etc. Exactly. And look, a perfect way to end this year is doing us this great favor. Go to therealignment.substack.com and subscribe there. Why? Because you are going to get transcripts of these episodes. If you need to go back and review what somebody said, it's going to be all right there. We're going to increase our listener feedback in there. So some of you guys send these incredible, long responses. We want to highlight them for everyone and get people debating with each other. Some people have even responded to the other long emails with their own long emails, which is awesome. That is exactly what Marshall and I want to be doing here for all of you. So Go over there, check out that Substack. I released my 2020 recommended books of the year from literally every category you could possibly want. If you want a gift, that's a great place to go and check it out. Marshall's is dropping on Friday, so there is a lot of content there that I think you guys are really going to love. And speaking of the Substack and Sagar's book list, mine is coming out on Friday. And be sure to go to our bookshop.org site. It's in the Substack. And there you'll find Sagar's book list, and you'll also find the books of the guests we've brought on the show. What's so cool about Bookshop is not only do you support local independent booksellers who are obviously hurting during COVID-19, but the show actually gets a 10% commission on any purchase that you make, so it really helps us out there. All right, Marshall, what is our question for the week? Reminder to everybody, if you want to ask us a question, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can write your question within that review or take a screenshot of your five-star review, send it into realignmentpod at gmail.com and ask us whatever you want. What is up this week? So today's question is from Brooks. What is the ideal situation with our national deficit? Should we just slow spending? Do we spend like we have been? 
Is our goal to make a profit to reduce our debt? Are we wanting to pay off debts? There are many philosophies towards our spending, but it's never explained properly to a regular 20-year-old. Can we spend money we don't have? Is our debt so big it's basically irrelevant? TLDR, what are the pros, cons, and possible solutions to our national debt? That is a great question, Brooks. And here's what I would say to that. I'm not an economist, so I'm probably not the person you should be coming to for total answers. However, based upon some of the people that we have spoken to, the United States is in a very different position. We're the world's reserve currency, which means it's not like somebody can just like call in our debt without causing a major global and economic catastrophe. It means that we do have a capacity to deficit spend at a level that like Japan or any other nation is able to. But I'm not sure if I'm fully bought into the idea that you can unlimited spend with zero consequences in the long run in total perpetuity. However, I would strongly contend that in the middle of a national and economic crisis like we have right now, that we would be fools not to do so in order to get us out of our economic depression and that we can make it up much more in the future. That is the key right there. We're obviously going to have huge debates about modern monetary theory. That idea Sagar is referencing that you could effectively spend vast amounts of money, far greater amounts of money than we think possible. But at a core level, as we're thinking about this going into a really tough COVID winter where businesses are failing, it's important for us to think of, to think about the debt issue in the right context. For example, during World War II, we spent far greater amounts of money proportionate to our overall GDP than we are today. Even during the worst parts of the Trump administration, the worst parts of the Obama administration, the worst parts of the Bush administration, at the height of the Iraq war and the financial crisis. Yet that deficit spending was worth it because it helped us win World War II. So today, we're not just sitting pretty with a rising stock market, a straightforward economy where everything's peachy keen. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, which in many respects will go on and be felt for years. Therefore, in my eyes, the priority here is dealing with this pandemic. When we brought Joe Weisenthal on, he gave the perfect response to the generic take here, which is we shouldn't spend this money because our grandchildren are going to have to pay it off someday. His response is, you know what's going to hurt your grandchildren? If your local business closes and you can't pay for their parents' college or you have an actual food insecurity problem happen. So we need to think about these debt and deficit issues in context. Sagar and I aren't arguing that de the debt does doesn't matter. We don't think you could spend whatever you want, but it's really, really disingenuous, especially in the Republican Party side, to pass massive tax cuts, which, as Richard will talk about during this show, could have useful economic effects, while all of a sudden getting very stingy with the purse during a deep economic recession that's hurting working and everyday people. So that's the key thing to think about there. Very well said. And as always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. It's been an excellent season since we've relaunched this show. And I just want to say on a personal note, it has been incredible to be here with you uh, twice a week, every week for the last several. And we will be back in 2021. We've got big, big plans. Do us a favor, subscribe to that Substack. And with that, let's dive in. Richard Hanania, welcome to The Realignment. Glad to be here. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Richard, 
the premise of this show, we started this whole thing out about a year and a half ago or so, and it was predicated on the idea that Donald Trump's election in 2016 was ushering in a grand political realignment, that this offered new opportunities for the GOP on economics, that there was a rethinking around trade, that actually economic issues and economic livelihood, the free market fundamentalism of the GOP itself had been stabbed in the heart. Now, the Trump presidency and how he governed just did not turn out that way. And I thought, and so did Marshall, I I think, is that before this election, I was like, oh, man, he's going to suffer a big price for not delivering on some of these promises on trade and on China and more. Uh, Then he got more votes. He actually got more votes than he did last time. He did even better in some working class districts than he did before. And so I'm like, well, what the hell is going on there? And then I read this paper that you and a guy named George Hawley have authored. And it's about how actually that entire economic thesis, the national populist thesis, which we have promoted heavily on this show, is just completely not true. So let's top line that a little bit. What did you find in your analysis How did you conduct that analysis? First of all, remember you're speaking to a general audience, so just try and contextualize it for them. But why is the working class GOP a myth, as you put it? So, you know, what we're doing is we're not um, reinventing the wheel in political science and people who look at data. So people have been studying uh, political opinions and why people vote the way they do and why they party identify the way they do uh, for decades. And there's always been, um, you know, a finding that goes back, like I said, for a really long time in that you cannot really predict people's um, voting based on their economic circumstances. You think you think maybe that that makes sense, but it doesn't work like that. You know, it's, it's uh, it's in the common parlance we'll hear, well, uh, you know, the elderly care about Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, they right. do, but the young like Social Security and Medicare too, though, you know, <laughs> it's very high. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, so there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of this, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of this research on issue by issue. And so go, fast forwarding, just going uh, to the last couple elections, um, it, it's it's not a new story. There's not been any kind of, you know, realignment in this direction. Uh, mm-hmm. Economics was a poor predictor of how you voted uh, before 2016. It was a poor predictor in 2016, and it was still a poor predictor in 2020 from what we know. And if you actually, you know, and the people, and, you know, specifically to the claim that Republicans are the working class party, which is said by people like Rubio, people like Howley, people like Cruz, who are trying mm-hmm. to sort of will this thing into existence. Um, if if you just, you know, if you had to pick out one party as the working class party, who won under 50,000 a year, it was actually the Democrats. Um, yeah. Now that's that's correlated with race and all kinds of things. So, you know, they, they win more blacks and Hispanics, but Republicans aren't even necessarily the white working class party. So if, even if you just compare whites to over 100,000 100, to, you know, significantly, le- significantly less than, you know, less than that, like 30,000 or under 50,000, you might find a few points in Trump's direction, you know, maybe five points or something. But out mm-hmm. of all the other things in the world, it's not a, it's not a huge predictor. And it's also conflated with education. Now, when you look at a, uh, degrees, um, then you see a big gap where the college educated, and this is this is sort of new to the Trump era. It's not a working class realignment. It's more of a, a sort of cultural realignment uh, where people who have college degrees are becoming, uh, whites at least, are uh, becoming more Democrat. Uh, who knows if that'll stay with Trump? It, it, it might not have actually uh, applied down ballot. So the right. Republicans did better down ballot in sort of these suburbs where Trump also just could be a Trump effect where, you know, the, the people without college degrees really <laughs> like him and the people with college degrees really hate him. And besides that, everything's pretty much the same. 
the key thing that you said is that there still could be a realignment. That's all that matters for the show's brand perspective. So that's very, <laughs> very, 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 very important. Um, but seriously, though, let's do this year by year. I get your point about economics not mattering to people. But from our show's perspective, Sagar and I really think back to August of 2015 when Donald Trump, then candidate, says things like, Jeb Bush wants to cut Social Security and Medicare. Jeb Bush is in favor of cutting taxes on wealthy people you don't like. I, and you saw Steve Bannon dive into this too, in many ways would be happy to increase taxes on the rich. That's the rhetoric that definitely got the working class GOP narrative really spinning. What does that rhetoric and that historical story just told you mean in the context of your data point, though? Uh, so, I mean, going back to 2016 primaries is, you know, very interesting. So, uh, you know, Trump won the primaries and the, you know, the question, one interpretation is this was a rebellion against uh, trade policy or this was a rebellion right. against, you know, uh, entitlement reform. Um, I think it was probably more immigration because immigration is just such a huge predictor of how people vote. And this was pretty much Trump's signature issue from the time he came down the escalator. I think it consolidated a lot of uh, sort of elite, geo not elite GOP, but elite media figures like Ann Coulter just went all in on Trump and just attacked everyone else. So I, would, I think it's probably the immigration issue, if anything. Um, and then I think one thing that backs this up is if you look at who finished second place in the Republican primaries, it wasn't Jeb Bush. You know, they, 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 they weren't buying that even if Trump wasn't there. It was Ted Cruz, pretty much the most conventional, you know, Republican GOP. I think he's made some overtures to populism in the last few years, but at least in 2016, pretty much conventional yeah. Reaganite. Uh, so it's it's a question how much these issues matter. You know, I, my, my theory is that Trump and Cruz were just the two people who triggered liberals and triggered uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell more than anyone else. And I think that was <laughs> enough. You know, I don't know how much, I don't know how much <laughs> these issues actually matter. A lot of this is just <laughs> attitude and to the extent issues do matter. I think you know, I would be inclined to explain it more in terms of immigration uh, yeah. rather than, you know, uh, trade policy or whatever. I want to dive into that immigration point, because what you just suggested is that if Donald Trump had run against Social Security privatization, the Medicaid stuff, all the more economically populist things I just described, your comments suggest that if he attached that critique to also being in favor of the DREAM Act and comprehensive immigration reform, yeah. it wouldn't have worked at all whatsoever. So can you go deeper into the immigration as a determinant of votes on the right? Well, you know, I just try to imagine that scenario. If he was pro you know, pro dream, pro dreamers, uh, pro yeah. uh, path to citizenship, and a liberal and economic issues. The liberal media would have loved him, and his fans probably wouldn't have developed that connection for him. I think he would have just been <laughs> a liberal in that case, and then and then the whole dynamic of sort of triggering the libs wouldn't have even uh, wouldn't have even worked. Uh, yeah, I mean. We actually, we looked at it. So for example, in our paper, what one thing we do is we look at GOP congressmen, right? And we, we can mm -hmm. actually, uh, there's, you know, databases that track votes and you can see where they are, how far to the right are they, how far to the left are they on. Uh, right. So you can look at this, uh, you know, sort of this model and you could see where they are in space. And one thing we wanted to check is do Republican politicians who are closer to the center on economic issues, do they actually do better um, uh, in, re in the reelection? And we, we find no evidence of that. Once you control for, you know, how um, the partisan lean of the district, it doesn't matter if you vote more, you know, in courts with the Democrats go a little bit more economically populist. You know, the, it's just the, um, the immigration issue, I mean, it's so huge because it's one of those predictors. It's like you can ask people, you know, you can look at what people's bank accounts, you can look at their profession. Um, 
you can look at, even there was one study which looked at their attitudes toward free trade and tried to predict it uh, based on how subject to competition their industry was. And it wasn't a strong predictor, cultural concern, cultural concerns, right. how you felt about foreigners in general was a better predictor, even how you felt about free trade, much less, uh, much less how you, how you voted. Uh, so you said I think something. That, yeah, yeah. One second. I want to make this point because you and I were talking on rising this morning and you were talking about some specific industry level data. And this just tears a hole in my heart, but you were <laughs> like, look, I mean, even in industries that are impacted by foreign competition, that foreign competition doesn't actually impact Voting behavior, just showing you the primacy of the culture war. Can you can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So if people are interested in the re uh, reference, uh, the lady's name is uh, Shahrazad Sabet, S-A-B-E-T. Uh, she's a uh, she's a, I think affiliated with Harvard, and um, yeah, she she did this study. It's called Feelings First, uh, so you can find the paper online. And actually, so it's basically. What she found is she goes industry by industry. And when people had strong feelings about uh, foreign influence on the country, cultural, that predicted mm -hmm. their economic, that predicted their views on trade. And then, but only when they didn't care about either way, so people are sort of in the middle and wishwashy, then she found an influence of um, trade on, on their attitude. So it's something that's there and it could be activated. A lot of things in politics could be activated. It's just a question of all the you know, forces in the universe, what's actually driving people. You know, the, 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 uh, you know, the story we tell in the, in the paper and we think it's consistent with the data is that basically most people are just partisans and that's getting, that's getting more solid. It's, you know, th there were some great focus group stuff where you would tell people actually what Paul Ryan wants to do to Medicare and they just don't believe it. Like, you know, it's like, even if he, you know, they do this stuff, they, they don't know. And like, they, 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 they can't yeah. believe it. Like they, you know, they don't want to believe it. And so most people are just partisans. They're just going to interpret all the data, you know, like the, the, how well do you think the economy is doing? It varies with partisanship a lot, right? As soon as Biden won, the Democrats became a lot more optimistic about the economy. Um, right. And then you have that, you know, you have some swing voters. There's fewer of them than I would have thought. I actually, you know, if you look at uh, like Wisconsin and, um, Pennsylvania and like the difference between 2016 and 2020 and all that's happened. And I thought the coronavirus just Trump's approval rating on the coronavirus was down and plus Biden being a more likable candidate than Hillary. I thought there would be more of a shift. I believe the polls. I thought maybe it would Dude, be a five, five point yeah. victory. <laughs> exactly the same. Yeah. You, yeah. Sh you shifted one or two points of all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, it's pretty incredible. I might've even underestimated the, uh, the partisanship, but to the extent that there's a few people who, uh, you know, vote on, um, economic issues. It tends to be economic results. So things like, um, you know, how fast the economy is growing. Um, this right, is one right. of Trump's strengths, actually. If you polled people on their economic situation before the coronavirus, it was pretty good. And his uh, handling of the economy always remained well. It's not specifics that they know, like, you know, when there's a negotiation between him and Pelosi, who wants the bigger deal. I don't think people are even paying attention. It's just like, okay, if I'm the kind of person who's not partisanship, I'm in that swing voter, you know, who what's what's going well? It's not even my class, right? It's just like, yes. I'm watching news, who seems to be doing well that's uh, so the that fascinating part richard this is what i could not wrap my mind around is when you were like it's not even about my personal wages it's not even about how my family and i was doing it's like when i watch the tv whose economy seems to be better and that feeds into this thing it's like when people are like hey well you know gas prices went down so i voted for trump and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> like, the president literally has no impact whatsoever on gas prices but but, and look, I don't want to discount this. People vote the way they vote. I'm never going to shame somebody for it, yeah. which is that when you look at the GDP top line numbers, I actually think that these deficit hawks who I've made fun of now for years 
are onto something, which is that when Trump is like, well, look at the GDP and look at the stock market, that shit actually translates, it turns out, to a lot of voters and how they vote on the economy. Uh, yeah. Push back. Yeah, I think that's, I, mean, I well, quick, quick thing. I want to push on that, Sagar, because yeah, go ahead. The argument that the and, I, and Richard, I want to get you on this because we've been talking yeah. about politi- politics, and I want to focus on policy for a second. The argument that the debt and deficit hawks and the tax cutters make is that those policies create specific results. That yes, then yes, helps. You're Trump. totally right. It's not, no one, I don't think anyone saw Trump talking about the stock market and that translated into a better thing. So, can you talk about that dynamic? You're yeah, so, right. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah. So, I mean, in the political science sort of jargon, it's called sociotropic voting. So, it's sort of, it's more social, right? It's how is the country doing overall rather mm-hmm. than uh, my situation. I think, I think that's right. I think nobody, so. You know, it's very simple to look at polling data and, and uh, some of the people populist right have done this and some people on the far left have done this too, like Bernie Sanders, who looks at the data and say, oh, people support a $50 per hour minimum wage or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you can right. find some very funny poll results. People will support you know, very, very left wing things. You know, actually, Paul Krugman, I mean, it's funny, like how necessary this is. Paul Krugman tweeted after the election that, you know, Trump won Florida by, you know, some big number, five per, uh, 5% or something. And then Florida also overwhelmingly passed a $15 uh, minimum wage yeah, by reference. We've talked about that a lot here, right? Yeah, and and he's like, I'm confused. Well, I mean, if you took it like an intro uh, class to political science, you really, you really wouldn't be. I mean, it, it's really not something that should blow your mind if you've if you've you know paid attention to the data of these last few decades at all. Uh, so yeah, I, I you know, so I don't think any like tax cut you know supply cider is foolish enough to believe that their stuff polls well. It clearly doesn't, and anybody can anybody can show that very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the better case for them is the economy grows, and you know you could look, you could look at you know Reagan's uh, success in 1984. People weren't enamored with you know uh, free market fundamentalism back then, uh, but you know he actually he degraded in 1984, one of the best uh, right. results ever. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the, that's the smart case for the free market policies that they. Uh, expand the economy, you know, everyone is better off, and then you end up actually helping the GOP. Let me put it this way. Their marketing is fantastic, right? So that's the part that I I think I missed, which is that when they're talking about growth, that actually strikes a nerve that I didn't think was there. Here's something I want to, I have my chart in front of you. This chart, I haven't been able to get this thing out of my head for like two weeks, which (laughs) is impact on Trump warmth among U.S. whites. Um, And let's go through this. The highest most correlated one is reducing immigration and then income is all the way on the very end. And so that suggests that the economic case, you said something on my show earlier, which I loved. You were like, yeah, I mean, the truth is a lot of immigration restrictions are not like more or are not like economically consistent around wages, which suggests that the driving force behind their argument when they talk about wages is kind of bullshit. So can you go into that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people who don't like immigration look for a PC reason not to like immigration. And so wages is sort of safe. It's not going to it's not going to get you canceled. I mean, if you, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like you could just take any one example. You know, I I like Tucker Carlson's show. He talks a lot about wages and immigration. He's not that interested in other things that have to do with wages. He's not interested in, oh, my God, the Republicans just passed a thing that Mm -hmm. made unionization more difficult. He's he's just thinking about it. I will speak for him. I actually think he would care a little bit more about you. 
organization. But I think that's a fair critique against some people. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you might be right. But, but you know, yeah. people, I mean, economists disagree on immigration and wages. And it's not like the average person is sitting there looking through the studies and looking at the Cato reports versus the American <laughs> Compass reports and seeing seeing who's correct, right? So, yeah, you know, yeah. what, what you buy about what the story you tell about immigration is sort of, you know, predetermined by your, you know, sort of cultural uh, attachments. You know, the, the way I think about it is that if you are, let's say you're poor and you're, you know, you're not doing well in life. The expl- like, world is so complicated. The number of explanations are infinite, right? So there's not some obvious thing. Some people will tell you it's the rich people. Some people will tell you it's the what it's white privilege. Some people will tell you it's immigrants. Some people will tell you it's capitalism. And there's no way for like just a normal person to just just uh, just uh, sort through all that. So yeah, these economic how we feel about economics tends to be interpreted in this way. So people who just are uncomfortable with immigration for cultural reasons will come to believe that it hurts wages and this and that. And people who like or of the uh, see themselves as anti-racist and you know woke right. we'll, we'll see it the other way we'll interpret the economic data that way so um yeah it's easy to get fooled and sort of take the surface for the real thing but you sort of just have to dig a little bit more into things and see you know what predicts what and you know what's the result of these regressions of these different kind of you know uh statistical models to to sort of get an answer and to separate the stuff out could you talk about what this means for the grand populist narrative i'm thinking back to february 2020, right before coronavirus, Sagar is smiling. You can't see his video because that was that was at the height of basically the rising populist narrative. (laughs) Bernie's crushing it. Sagar thinks Trump's going to beat Bernie. There's this big argument about how we're going to have this populist left, populist right come together to challenge plutocracy. What does everything you're saying? mean for that narrative a narrative saga you and i have poo-pooed on for the past while but it just seems like this is really the final stake in that idea yeah. yeah, I mean, so this is, yeah, this is the, you know, this is the the Sanders temptation, if you think Sanders is the best candidate. You look at him and you say, well, you know, his stuff sort of matches with the polls and Sanders and Sanders supporters will, will say that. But you know, Bernie, look, when Bernie Sanders, uh, when he won one of the primaries, I don't remember which one it was, or when he lost one of the primaries, he came out and he said, oh, the stock market went, uh, the stock market uh, went up because I lost. Yeah. Like, oh, ha, ha, look at all the capital gets me. It's like, that's not like, you can't just become president and then the stock market keeps crashing and then you say, great, <laughs> like, because my stuff pulls well. So it was such a, yeah. such a demonstration of how, you know, you're sort of not getting how it works in real life. Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't want to be too negative on the populist vision. I do think there is, you know, I don't like dogma. I don't like this idea that where you just look for the free market solution and whatever we find, we don't have to ask questions anymore. Um, you know, I think I, I think that some people, um, you know, but if you see populism as sort of a way to get into power, if you think it's populism is economic populism or these more populist views are actually good for the country, my, my data would say, go ahead and do it because it'll actually have good results. So it's not saying don't do populism. It's just saying, don't be fooled into thinking that um, by adopting these populist positions, you're going to win elections because, you know, yes. you, it might have no influence and it might actually hurt you if, if the policy doesn't work out as well as you planned. See, this is the fascinating thing. And this is why I'm really real. This is, I mean, what depresses me about this is I just see how easily this is co-opted by people within the establishment, right? Is that like, if you can brand economic populism as working with the left and being a liberal sellout, it doesn't matter if your policy is going to help your voters or not. They're just not going to trust you. I mean, one of the things you pointed out is that it seems to me to be a GOP 
primary uh, victor, you have to be hated by the media, which is basically what Ted Cruz and Donald Trump had in common. And that their underlying policy, as you point out, between Cruz and Trump was dramatic, but they kind of did best, which tells you that overall attitude. Here's the question. Is there a way out of it? I, I mean, I know that, you know, you're, when you're looking at the data, and if you were to see like a slip um, through, what would it be? Because I guess what someone like me, look, I'm not going to stop caring about my economic positions, but like I'm not stupid, and I think that these are not as politically popular as I once thought. Is I'm looking if I read your data, I'm like, well, look, if I want to increase and change the GOP's views on unions and wages and more, you basically have to be the hard, most hardcore culture warrior on earth. Then after you win, you appoint all of the right people. Um, but after you do that, could it then change voting behavior? What do you think? Uh, so. You know, it's so interesting. You you say that yeah. you know, Cruz and Trump are these two people, and they have such different views. And and sort right. of how amorphous the anger is is, I think, very interesting. You know, I, I'm I, when I came to age and started paying attention to politics, the first things you wanted to own the liberals of was not supporting the Iraq War. So you'd yes. say you guys are surrenderers, and it was the same people who then became the Tea Party. I mean, the same <laughs> basic voter base and the same people, and this were the same people who went to Trump. So you and these things have so little in common. You know, they but the 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 policy people who get appointed stay the same the judges stay the same mm -hmm. uh but sort of the mass message is just different and i, I don't want to just single out the the right here though i mean the left is driven by you know we'll get there don't we'll, we'll, we'll beat up all over the left in a second yeah <laughs> yeah so so what you know what to do yeah i think being an effective culture war advocate is the way to do it I, I, what i find when i watch politics is a lot of the people who are sort of most hardcore on the cultural issues are sort of you know not the how to put it nicely, not the smoothest politicians don't have necessarily <laughs> the best presentation. And so they might not have broad appeal. They might be bad for winning general elections. You know, some of these people, they don't do well in, uh, uh, in actual elections. Um, but if you could combine, you know, charismatic, somebody who's charismatic, somebody who can, um, you know, uh, uh, take these cultural issues, but not, you know, sort of make a fool of himself in the process, you know, I'm not, I'm not a GOP strategist or anything, but if I was giving advice, it would be something like that. And then the yeah. economic stuff, you know, I don't want, and also I would, I would also add that uh, the, uh, you know, there is some evidence that the economic appeals can be effective if they're direct and simple enough for people to understand. So writing a check and mailing it out to people, yeah, that'll, that'll yes. work. I would not yes. suggest taking away people's social security checks. It's not like nothing matters, but like, okay, I'm going to raise tariffs and I'm going to increase your, you know, the pe people in this industry of three years down the line and people are going to vote on that. No, that's, that's not realistic. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one thing is interesting. I mean, you, you, one thing that the left actually does is they do things and the right does this in reverse and they try to undo it is uh, public, you know, for example, uh, empowering public sector unions, right? Those are a base mm -hmm. that's going to be there for them. Uh, you know, people don't, you say people don't vote there. Well, there could be when you have something like a union, you have that sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, social monitoring and you create this sort of like group identity. Also, I would say the left, the way they uh, do racial classifications. Um, I'm an Arab. And so I'm considered Caucasian because our lobbyists weren't as good as uh, Indians and Pakistanis who got, who got into the, <laughs> who got into the Asian category. Sorry, Richard. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the, uh, and the Biden administration actually has something very fascinating where he wants to uh, disaggregate the Asian category because mm -hmm. Asians look, good in the aggregate but if you were able to take out laotians or or whatever you'd, you'd have more people who can sort of you know have a stake in the in the in the welfare state and so republicans do this in reverse when they go on union busting they don't really resist the uh, the race stuff all that much um they you know they they they, they prefer not to think about it uh, so there are there is room to creatively think about 
you know, don't lose track of the idea that the cultural stuff is important. You're not going to be like, you're not going to just be able to adopt Bernie Sanders's platform and say, you know, I'm a Republican and get everyone right. to vote for you. So keeping that in mind, but also you can be sophisticated at sort of uh, looking at these direct methods to help people, direct methods not to harm them, and sort of creating conditions that create new bases for your voters and taking away voters from the other side. I want to pick up on something you said around do culture wars the smart way, because I'm incredibly skeptical that especially at the current class of Republican Party politicians, it's it's something on the table, quote unquote, smart culture war politics. An interesting example in an NR piece you recently wrote that we'll put up in the show notes was you talked about how, look in California, very blue state, affirmative action is pretty resoundingly shut down. So hypothetically, that could provide a path forward for Republicans. But what I suspect, and I'm just thinking out loud here, is that affirmative action was shut down because the state Republican Party is just so atrophied that in a weird area, people could just look at the affirmative action question in a sort of nonpartisan way and say, hey, do I like it? No. But if there had been a successful Republican Party in the state, if Trump had been actually viable in the state and the issue was identified as, hey, if you're pro-Trump, you want to ban affirmative action. Yeah. And if you're anti-Trump, you want to support affirmative action. I suspect it wouldn't have passed in California. So how do you think about that broad context? Yeah, that's you're thinking a lot. But that's I mean, that's that's actually a good point. So I guess my advice would be different whether I was uh trying to help the Republican Party, I was trying to help the affirmative action cause. If I was trying to help the affirmative yeah. action cause, I would try to do exactly what, you know, what happened in California, try to get on the ballot in a blue state um, where Republicans don't even exist and try to keep it under the radar. If it comes on the radar and it becomes like all good Democrats have to for, you know, the fact that they weren't paying attention um, is a good thing. So maybe Republicans taking up this issue would actually be bad for the affirmative action cause. Affirmative action is so unpopular though that I think that Repo if Republicans took it up, it probably would be good for Republicans. Um, and it's hard to say for the issue, you know, depend on how the election turned out. If if they ran on affirmative action and then won, there's a lot you can do in the executive branch to take. But if you run on it, you know, you, you run on it and then you lose, Democrats can be more excited about pushing more affirmative action or whatever. Uh, yeah. So so it's risky, right? It, I, I think you're right. If you, Nonpartisanship is the best thing. You know, there's fascinating, there's fascinating research that the, uh, you know, Congress passes laws all the time, but... Uh, you know, so like, you know, even the last few years, they passed bills on like sex trafficking and the opioid crisis, and it gets bipartisan support. And it just happens if it doesn't sort of become part of the circus, if it doesn't become part of the culture war. As soon as the president champions an issue or it becomes a major thing and a major debate, uh, then it becomes much more difficult. So, yeah, I mean, it depends on if you care about these issues or if you care about the party. And if you care about the party, you want to think about these things in a careful way. If you care about the issue, you know, uh, affiliating with the party might be the worst thing. You, maybe it might be the worst thing you can. Do. And yeah, I want to follow up a quick point here because I think you're really right to point out that affirmative action is this uniquely probably unpopular policy issue that even in a blue state has is going to have issues. But think of immigration. Not right now, this moment, it, like immigration is the most popular it's been in a very long time because of the fact that it's associated with Trump so much. So how do you think about how and once again, I'm not asking you to be a Republican Party strategist here, but how should any Republican think about that issue? Because they would say, well, look, immigration activates our base, but then at the same time, when it's tied to the way it was tied to, you get the child separation crisis, you get the unpopularity of the issue, and that happens. So how should any office holder or activist think about the problem? 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's a two-sided coin. So when I tell you culture drives politics, I'm telling you this is what's going to drive your base of Republicans, but it's also going to drive the Democrats. Now, one thing the Republicans have going for them is sort of the map of the Senate and the map of the Electoral College. Trump was a lot more competitive than you you would have thought just based on overall popularity. So they do have these advantages. The polling on this stuff is really strange. So the polls... um, the polls misunder, you know, the polls, uh, you know, under really underestimated Trump's support, particularly in the Midwest. It repeated what happened in 2016. So it seems like there might be, and actually 2018 in some of these races, like uh, Josh Howley and Mike Brown in uh, Indiana, they they underestimated the Republicans there too. Joni Ernst, um, you know, there's a, just yep. a, there's a something Susan going Collins on, but, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Susan Collins, yeah, in the in the Northeast, but in the Midwest, that was a weird. That was the weirdest one of all, actually. But, yeah, <laughs> the, but the it was very very just consistent to the Midwest, um, and so you would see these things during the George Floyd protests, it was like, you know, whites used to overwhelmingly oppose Black Lives Matter, and now they overwhelmingly support it. I I looked at that and said, wow, the culture might have really changed. So this is going to be a disaster for the Republicans. They don't even have that. You know, it's like we're polarized. One side is just swallowing the other. The election comes around. It looks exactly like it does in 2016, except two points, you know, in this state or that. Yeah, right. So, you know, I, I... I don't, you know, I, I don't know about, I don't know about this immigration, you know, even the, even the polling, even just the polling itself, it bounces back. So after the George Floyd stuff, uh, there was just a poll in morning consult. Uh, if you ask people like how much they support police right after the George Floyd protest, it was, um, it went down a lot. And then, but in 26, but if you, but uh, a recent poll showed it pretty much the police have bounced back and the criminal justice system about back just as much approval as it had in uh, 2016. So what's going on? Maybe public opinion is just like, uh, you know, really like, it, you know, it has, it, it, it just like sort of bounces around really fast, but then it's sort of when the thing recedes from the headlines, it goes back to its natural state. There was one, po- there was one uh, paper, I wish I remember who wrote it, but uh, it actually showed this, that public opinion changes through generational change. So basically you can see short-term changes, like people will become more concerned with racial justice after uh, one police killing, but then it basically bounces back. Eventually public opinion does change, but it's a very long process. So it's not like that relevant for one or two elections. Um, And so, yeah, I, I I, I would not take the polls seriously when they seem to suggest that liberals overwhelmingly dominate on these issues that now they're you know their republicans are in a minority particularly in the states where they need to win you know they still might be they still might be solid here uh so yeah it's it's a cost benefit there's no there's no easy path that's the that's the problem with a polarized country there's no magic bullet to say i'm going to adopt this cultural issue and i'm going to win because there's always a reaction and there's another side to it it's just yeah. it's just very hard Richard, you're you're an expert on data, and I'm, you're basically telling. I mean, can we believe polls at this point? I mean, I relied on them so much before the election, and and, and I believed their BS, right? Like they were like, well, you know, last time we didn't sample enough education, and I was like, oh, I believed it. I was like, okay, I mean, it seems reasonable, right? For why you missed this and sample size and oversampling this and all that. And it turns out these cranks I follow on Twitter who are like trying to debunk the polls were actually a lot more correct than they were uh, than like the actual pollsters. So just uh, like, do you, do, would you advise our listeners, me, Marshall, others who are looking at this, how do we look at polls, especially around issues like this? So, you know, it's complicated. So you could say, you know, these, these cranks seem to be right in 2020, these people who are seem to be engaging Mm -hmm. in wishful thinking. Well, in 2018, 
they were completely wrong and the standard pollsters were correct. The standard, uh, the standard pollsters <laughs> had Democrats winning the congressional ballot by like seven points. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. And Rasmussen was the only outlier, had a tie to Republican plus one. Got and they were, and they were completely wrong. So it's, it's, it's important to take sort of a more long-term view and just look over time. 538 does a lot where they try to, you know, uh, look at it over time. And what they basically found is on average, you know, going back, um, you know, uh, as, as long as we have data, I think, I think they go back to, I don't remember, the 50s or 60s or something like that. Maybe, maybe the 70s, I don't know. But basically the average of the poll ended up being, the average of polls ended up being four points off from the results of the popular vote. And if you look at the 2020 result, uh, it, it's going to end up being four points off. The average had about wow. Biden plus eight, and it's going to end up being about Biden plus four. Uh, so they're not terrible. I mean, if you're just going to listen to one thing in the world, the thing is, what's the alternative? The alternative is wishful thinking. If yeah, I give you right. a thing that's on average um, four, you know, within four points, and sometimes a little bit higher, and sometimes it's exact, like it's right, right on point, I would take that over you know, people engaging in wishful thinking. It's just the alternative is not very that's good. That's a good point. Now... They, in the Midwest in particular, they had a problem. So sometimes you have a problem with one community or one area. And the idea behind 2016, people were saying, well, they didn't sample enough uh, non-college whites. So they try to get a sample, right? You try to get so many Hispanics, so many Blacks, so many college, but they didn't do college or non-college because before 2016, it didn't matter. Whites with college and without college didn't really vote that differently. Uh, In 2016, they did. In 2020, they did. So they corrected for that. Uh, and they were still off. Now, yeah. you know, what, what David Shore says is there might be a problem in that, you know, Republicans, you know, uh, there might be a certain kind of Trump voter, a certain kind of Republican who has distrust in institutions. And so even if you're getting enough college, non-college, those, you know, the non-college who are answering their phones or who are talking to pollsters might be different than, um, than those who are talking to pollsters. And so why you can see this systematic and there's no easy way to correct where it's not like you can find, you know, it's not like it's easy as just get more non-college uh, respondents. Um, so it's a difficulty for polling. I still think polling is, you know, the, the, there's no there's no alternative and it's not that bad. Don't take it as, you know, gospel. Um, the... Um, you know, some people said there was a, a shy Trump vote and people were afraid to talk to pollsters. I don't think that's true because it underestimated Republicans everywhere. And Susan Collins was like more, the, the polling on Susan Collins was more off than anywhere else. And I don't know if voting for Susan Collins is that, you know, is that, uh, is that scary? <laughs> Admitting that is that scary to people. So right. um, yeah, the, the, the main case they're going to have to, they're going to have to look at for a while. I don't know what, I have no clue what went wrong there. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would still take polls. Um, uh, I would still take polls as, you know, still the best in town. And I would not take somebody um, seriously just because they got 2020. All, every single one of those people, look what they said in 2018, right? And you'll see that they're just, you know, they're just saying the Republicans are going to do better than the polls. And sometimes they happen to be right. But sometimes, you know, they're going to be wrong. And, you know, it's, and it's not like if they're always biased against the Republicans, because in 2012, Romney didn't do as well as the polls said. So they underestimated That's uh, right. Obama. So next time you know they might they they might underestimate the uh they might underestimate Who the, hell knows, the democrat man. yeah exactly i it just <laughs> yeah the question is what the alternative is i mean i would just go back to that and say uh, until you've got something that over time can even get within four or five points in an election um you know that's the best you could do i would take it even let so i you know a mixed uh, view on polls i would take i would be even more skeptical though of the ones on things like uh you know a criminal justice reform and and things like that i think there's a you know, they're never tested. So when there's an election, 
There's always yes. a test and you can see how they do over time. There's never a referendum on Black Lives Matter, right? And then you can see other polls good or not. So there's no system where you can get closer to the truth and know if you're getting the right balance or whatever. And the results from the 2020 election would make me think that some of these things about the country moving to the left on these issues were probably exaggerated and probably not correct. We just, we just don't know. So excellent point. As Sagar promised, we're going to get to the left in the last half of the show. But I'm realizing something. I want to know what you think about it. If I'm understanding what you're arguing correctly, many of the arguments for economic populism aren't standing up to the actual results that we're talking about here. But what I'm curious about is what happens when economic populism intersects with a culture war issue. For example, something many right populists argue is for the past 30 years, part of the reason why the right has lost every single culture war is because the right, while losing power in academia, entertainment, corporations, etc., has lost all that power, they've also refused to use the power of the state to advance their ends. So a good example of this would be the antitrust debate. I know quite a few Republicans who are now interested in antitrust against Facebook and Google, not because they're truly interested in overthrowing the, Bur Bur the um, Borkian idea that we do antitrust based on consumer pricing, but because they think that these corporations hate conservatives, they want to use government to attack them. How do you think about the way the GOP is now thinking about economics when it intersects with that culture war example? So, uh, you know, I think that this is something that can, I think it can lead you down a blind alley because I think it's a little bit- um, We specialize in those, so thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the reason re uh, Republicans and conservatives care about Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter, like you said, is because they think they're being treated unfairly on these sites. And, and I think they are. I think that's that's true. Um, and the idea is you'll just unleash antitrust and somehow you'll harm them. Yeah, if you just want to harm, you can do it, you know, you harm them. The uh, But, I, you know, I was reading about the uh, the actual, um, some of the stuff that's going, to, uh, that the, uh, the, the antitrust stuff that's going after Facebook. And it tends to be things that Democrats would have supported, you know, five, 10 years ago. It's just standard antitrust. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, I you know, there, but there's so much directly you could do on the cultural issues, particularly from the executive branch. Um, the entire, for example, the affirmative action uh, state is basically um, is executive order. You can look at just uh, there was going back to um, LBJ and uh, Nixon. And there was, you know, some uh, steps towards doing something, the diversity, the critical race theory training. You can actually yes. go much further than that uh, in the Trump administration. So, you know, I think if you're concerned with cultural issues, just fight the cultural issues. Don't think you're going to, like, uh, have tariffs and that's somehow going to restore the traditional family. You know, maybe it will. But, like, <laughs> if, you like if you like the traditional family, you know, uh, advocate for that and give tax credits and subsidies or whatever to make that happen. I wouldn't try to do it in this sort of indirect way. I just, it gets captured too easily. I think it's sometimes cowardice. I think people, like I said, people are afraid to talk about these issues directly. So it's like sort of a safe way to signal, you know, what you're concerned about. But I, I don't think it's effective and I don't see, you know, any evidence that it can be effective. Quick follow up to yeah. better precisely say, state my question. Has Republicans' attitude towards the use of government power shifted? Because that's what the argument is. The argument is, right. is that tr the Trumpian moment has made the Republican, in which in their eyes is working class base, more comfortable pushing back against the libertarian idea that you shouldn't use the state to advance your ends if those ends are conservative. So that's that's the direct question I'm asking. 
Yeah, so as far as the base, I don't think they ever had a problem with using government to accomplish conservative ends. I don't think that's ever been like a base issue. And so the question is, did Trump sort of shift the activists and the elites? Um, you know, probably not. I would say I would say the rhetoric <laughs> is a little bit different. But if you look at, you know, right. Trump's appointments and actual policies, you know, the the the. Um, you know, the greatest uh, or the most important legislative accomplishment was the was the tax cuts. And then the, uh, the other ones they tried to do is repeal Obamacare. It could have been any other Republican president doing that stuff. So I think rhetorically, there's a lot going on. Um, but policy wise, you know, I don't see it that as far as, you know, the base or the general public, I don't think they ever had, you know, uh, a, a sort of ideological opposition right. to power. It's just, you know, they, I think that's pretty much unchanged. But the, what, the good thing about what you're saying, though, Richard, is that you're not saying that they are, like, in favor of it. What I'm reading is, like, I don't really give a shit. As long as you, like, are throwing, um, you know, like, as long as you're talking about the issues the way that you're supposed to. So, okay, we promise we're going to dunk on the left, too. Um, you're here to myth-bust um, the right, and I think you've successfully myth-busted everything I've been saying for the last two years. And it's not even like I can really counter it because I basically agree with you. Um, let's talk about the left, then, right? So... Uh, one of the things that drives me insane is when they're like, Medicare for all is like a 99% issue or something, right? They're like, yeah. they're like, you can't find an American in this country except a healthcare executive who believes in Medicare for all. Um, and I know the Bernie listeners who listen to this podcast are going nuts. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, let's myth bust some of the things what you were talking about with Bernie Sanders, which is that let's say if the le progressive left is so popular on paper, then why do Democratic voters not like Bernie overall? Or at least why do they not vote for him and why do they vote for a guy like Joe? Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about the Democrats is, you know, we said that the Republican primary in 2016 was just about who would trigger the left. Democrats actually tend to trust their leaders and their institutions. And, you know, there's polling that backs this up. So uh, the South Carolina primary was the big one. And around that time, uh, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, they saw it was going to be Bernie and that there was no other option. It had to be Biden. And all these people dropped right. out and it actually it actually worked. Um, so the part of it is just Democrats just sort of trust their institutions. That's why Bernie, you know, can't break through. He had you know, that 25, 30% committed base. And uh, maybe, you know, we couldn't get it much uh, past that. Um, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's it's just, you know, the most simplistic thing you could do to just look at what people say in polls and then try to sort of shape a uh, political agenda uh, around that. I think they're smart to like get the stuff on ballot initiatives, like to the extent they could do that, that's smart mm -hmm. because you'll end up winning that. Uh, but, you know, like we said, they, it's a cult, you know, there's a cultural, uh, sort of a stigma or a sort of, a, uh, you know, so, there's associations that people don't like. So, you know, I mean, if Bernie went to Cubans in Miami and, you know, said, you know, oh, look, they agree with me on minimum wage and they agree with me on health care. Like you, you have nice things to say about socialism. That, that's all that matters. That's all they care about. Yeah. <laughs> They're, they're not going right. to vote for you. Uh, so yeah, people, you know, overestimate. I think, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like, it goes back to, it's, it's like a Marxist idea, really, that everybody's politics can be explained by their, you know, class position. And we've had, you know, a, since Marx, we've had a, a lot of examples of very wealthy socialists. And we've had a lot of examples of societies where the poor people have been sort of more bastions of conservatism. So it, it, I think there's this idea that you can make sort of politics scientific. It all comes down to material factors. Um, and I, I think that's I think that's a um, I, I don't think that's the right direction for uh, for either side of the aisle. The you know the, the because when you think about it, you know the people when they vote, 
they don't actually influence the outcome, right? I mean, that's, that's a, you, you, your one vote does not influence the outcome. Right? Yeah. So you, you are not, if, if there was like, you know, I pay you like 200 bucks if you voted your interest, that might actually work. But you have a, like something like a one in a billion billion uh, chance of influencing the actual election outcome. So what does that mean? You don't think about it too much. You're, you're basically trying to express something when you're voting. You're trying to express solidarity because if it's rational, you just wouldn't do it at all because like I said, odds of changing are zero. So to see it as sort of more a social activity or something that's expressive and cultural more than economically based. Now there's lobbying group and interest groups and, you know, people who are more economically motivated. I'm talking about the mass level. Right. No, and this is what we have to separate, which is that there's the elite level where what you're talking about, elite opinion actually influences policy more than anything. This is something I have come to understand, which is that it's almost entirely disconnected whatsoever from the general populace. But then how the general populace interprets that and more is the question that we're trying to solve here. And so, I mean, when, a more basic form of what I'm asking you is like, what are the central theses that the progressive left gets wrong about politics? If there's the right-wing national populace, what they got wrong is thinking that economics was key to Trump's victory. What did the progressive leftists get wrong most about politics? It's basically the same. It's basically the same yeah. thing, right? It's the same mistake. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do the things that seem popular, which is you know go left wing on more economic things, and and you know there's uh, it's even it's much worse for some people on the left because it's like they refuse to acknowledge the other side even even has ideas. Like I mean, I listen to them sometimes, and they're just like, oh, the billionaires want this, the billionaires want that, like. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't think Charles Koch just wants to protect his wallet. He's, the, he's put a lot of money towards things that make him no money at all, like foreign policy, for example. I've uh, been a recipient of some grants from Institute of Means, and I see no way that Charles Koch benefits from a less interventionist American foreign policy, right? He just believes it. So even the, you know, the wealthy mm-hmm. people who are influencing politics to a great extent care about uh, ideas. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the side that's losing tends to adopt this uh, thing is tough to adopt this. So, I mean, I think the left, they think, they think, you know, we just, um, you know, I mean, there's like, there's like a, you know, there's the neoliberal left that goes more in on identity issues and just ignores the, and then the uh, economic issues. Other people say, no, you actually have to talk to people and, you know, uh, talk to, talk to their economic circumstances. And yeah, they're just, they're just wrong. If they were correct, you know, Sanders would have taken, uh, would have done very well. Even if you look at the uh, uh, level of, um, you know, approval for people like AOC and Ilhan Omar, Look, if, they, if, that, if it was that simple, where you translated from uh, uh, people's positions to how they supported politicians based on those positions, those would be some of the most popular politicians in the country, uh, arguably. It's sort of like on the right, there was this, there's an equivalent thing where uh, some people go really hard on the immigration issue. And the immigration issue used to be much better for Republicans, Poland-wise, five to 10 years ago. The problem is when you go hard on that immigration issue, you start getting media coverage, which says, wait a minute, does this guy have ties to the Klan? Is he, is he some kind yeah. of Nazi? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And any benefit you get from say Steve King's name, just yeah. <laughs> don't don't erase Steve King. Just yeah. just name Steve names. <laughs> Never. Uh, yeah, whatever you get, yeah, whatever you benefit you get from the immigration issue is more going to be swamped out by the negative associations with Nazis and Klansmen. And you know, some of it is hysterical and stupid, but people have those associations. Just like on the left, whatever benefit you get from you know the economic issues makes you seem sort of you know out there and you know a leftist and sort of anti-American and maybe bad for business and these yeah. associations people have you know they can they can backfire um you know i'd, I'd recommend people uh look at uh on twitter or just read the stuff david shore who's uh who's yes. sort of doing what i'm doing but a little bit on the left he's looking at the data and saying you know you people on the far left who think you've got the key to winning elections you know it's off um so <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's um 
you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that I think we're at a point where both sides are sort of making almost the same mistake, um, yes. just with different variations on it. I want to pick up on something you said before we take this to our last section on polarization, which is your point that most actual Democratic voters trust institutions because there's this whole segment of the Bernie left who is all about the rhetoric of, oh, the DNC primary was rigged in 2016 and, oh, Obama made some calls, you know, right before South Carolina. What they are doing is they're importing rhetoric, which makes sense in the Republican Party. BKA in the Republican Party, right. everyone hates the institutions. Everyone yeah. hates they John hate Boehner. The <laughs> like it's funny we're see, we're seeing you know uh, um, I haven't actually read Molly Ball's biography of Nancy Pelosi. She's a good reporter, so I'm not going to say it's just fawning, but it's definitely a positive biography. No center right reporter is writing a positive biography of John Boehner in 2014. It wouldn't sell a single <laughs> book. That's the key. So what they're doing is these young people are important, who young people, and I'm not surprised that young people distrusting institutions more on the Democratic side than the older like boomer voters, but they're making this mistake. Do you think that as this generational change happens, because that was another really interesting point you made. As the Democratic Party ages down as, you know, silent um, generation and boomers eventually leave the stage, will the Democratic Party also become anti-institutional? Or are we just letting very hyper-online Gen Zs and millennials sort of uh, shape my view of how young people see institutions? Yeah, I think there's I think there's something to that generational change. So uh, we have a, a, a post up at uh, CSBICenter.org just this morning uh, from Eric Kaufman uh, looking at the black vote and looking at difference uh, in age demographics. And it's uh, quite striking. I mean, if you uh, ask people what party they identify with or if they identify no party, blacks, the oldest blacks are something like 80, 80 something percent Democrat. And the youngest blacks are like mid 50s, like 55 percent. Yeah. So you have like a 30 point drop off in how much you associate with Democrats. Not that they're all becoming Republicans. They're just more becoming independent and, you know, not not. Uh, uh, liking the institution. And you saw the gap in Sanders versus Biden voting. Black, young Blacks and Hispanics uh, were more supportive of Sanders. So yeah, it's, um, I, I do think you can get that generational change. It's, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting why the Republican Party ended up sort of this way, where like they have leaders, but they hate these leaders more than anyone else in the world. And it's like, you know, a party in a democratic country. It's sort of strange. And maybe, you know, that's a longer uh, discussion. But yeah, I think you could get that with the Democrats. And I think that once you get that, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's good for our politics. I don't think it's good for our politics if both sides just will not listen to anybody in any position of power and just sort of hate their leaders. Now, what can happen is the leaders might align. So like, you know, in, in 30 years, uh, the Sanders' descendant, whoever that is, uh, could become the nominee and the party and the um, the base actually uh, actually care about the same things. The problem with the Republicans is um, their their base and the elites in their party just are in it for different things. The mm -hmm. base is in it because they dislike, you know, gender pronouns. They dislike affirmative action. They dislike uh, changing demographics. And, you know, the Republicans will, will talk a little bit about that stuff, but generally are, are afraid to, and they're in it for, you know, Tax cuts, free markets, you know, uh, expansive foreign policy. So this this is sort of the this is sort of the, um, uh, and it's not even like, it's not even like because of the issues. It's because you know they still the base still loves Trump, 
it's more they want to feel represented and they want to feel heard and they want to feel like somebody cares about their issues, even if otherwise you end up governing um, yeah. like Republicans traditionally do. Just so interesting, man, about about how exactly the the difference between feeling and re- and I wouldn't want to say reality. I, I guess like per se, perceived reality can be from what is in Washington. And again, actually just goes to show where a lot of people, it's not just they're too online. I think they're like too here. They're just too in it um, to understand how how it's actually being internalized yeah, I mean, on the if outside. You are like, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, if you, if you, if the people who listen to this show are in the yeah. top 1% of interest and knowledge. Oh about yeah. Politics. Right. Right. So you have a bunch of people in the top 1% or the top 0.1% of, um, you know, political knowledge and interest talking to one another. You're going to overestimate the importance of issue. What actually people know. Uh, it's so funny. I saw uh, Jeet here. The, uh, he's a reporter for uh, yes. the New Republic. The other day, he said uh, he had a picture of when uh, uh, Feinstein hugged Lindsey Graham. And yeah, just yeah. Like, this is the moment the Republican, the Democrats lost yeah. the Senate. Like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think one in a hundred people. Like, I, you know, I would be surprised if one to five percent of the population even knew that happened. Uh, so yeah, that'd be I, shocking. I, that would be really yeah. Shocking. Anyway, that's so funny. You're so. It's so true. All right, yeah. last question for you here. You're talking about how we have the most like polarized you know, polarized moment in a long time. I actually saw you talking a little bit about this, um, uh, about civil war, right? Like a rush Limbaugh was like, Oh, people are going to succeed, uh, secede and, and all that. And then I saw like Amy Susskind be like, let Jesus land be, and we'll reunite with Canada and like all of that. I mean, put this in socio-political context, Richard, like, are we actually that divided? Um, you know, are we even close to any sort of violent confrontation? What do you think? Uh, those are two different questions. So are we, that Oh, divided? okay. All right. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we are very divided. Are we close to any kind of civil war? No. So I mean, I could okay. go a little bit. You know, there's you know, good, good. Um, you know, I'm pretty confident in both of us. So I, I'm divided. You can just look. Hopefully, at the- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're confident yeah. on the second one. Yeah. I, you know, sometimes uh, you know, optimism on these things doesn't doesn't sell as much as pessimism. It might be better if I told you, yeah, we're all going to be killing each other by the end of the week. But no, I, I don't believe that. Um, yeah, so the, you know, people dislike the other party more. You can see it in the rhetoric of elites, and you can see it just in you know how people respond to their feelings for the party. You know, people are more likely than ever to say, for example, they'd be upset if uh, their child married someone of the opposite party. And you know, 20, 30 years ago, you mm-hmm. wouldn't you wouldn't find anybody who said that. That would just that just <laughs> seems sort of crazy. Uh, so yeah, that's true. Now, civil wars, you know, uh, you know, this is another one of my, you know, areas that, I, that I've looked at the data, and they tend to happen in poor countries where governments are weak. Um, they didn't tend not to happen in rich countries um, at all. And if you, you know, and people who study civil war will look at actually, you know, you have to define your terms. And generally, they define civil war as something like a thousand deaths in a year. Now, we have one or two deaths. It's something like, you know, Charlottesville or something like that, and it's, it's tragic. Um, and people in your, you know, when the Proud Boys and Antifa, they, you know, they enjoy fighting each other in, mm-hmm. in Portland. Uh, you know, maybe some somebody dies sometimes. So usually they're just they're just punching each other. Uh, you know, to, that's a long, long way from civil war. And so, you know, I don't I don't think we're anywhere close to that. You know, the, the the government just, you know, it work the institutions, the police, the FBI, they work too well. If what you imagine one group like starts to uh, actually commit violence, you you be the one to get the ball rolling. I do not recommend that. Just for not just morally, but for your own movement, you're you're gonna you know the it's 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 a terrible strategy because they're gonna come on down on you and they're gonna come on down on you quick. So yeah, I worry about some things about the future of the country. You know, civil war fortunately is not one of them. Mm-hmm. So here's the question though: everything I'm hearing tells me that the 2020s are going to be one of the lamest decades in American history. <laughs> Nothing's going to get done. 
everything that's even pretty medium or moderate is going to get sort of inserted into the culture war space. So it seems that I would sum that all up as we're going to have a lost decade ahead of ourselves. Hope that you're not so old that that wasn't going to matter for you. But that's my takeaway because we get we get incoming listener mail and some people say, Marshall Sager, are you guys going to launch a pack or start like yeah, an activist right. movement to advance? And I'm like, dude, like, what are you like? Nothing. None yeah. of that's happening. Um, we could obviously make a nice Patreon off of it, but it wouldn't mm. actually translate into anything with all these set of things. Because my last thing I'll add to this is everything I hear you describing seems to be just incredibly difficult from a political perspective. If you're a politician of good faith, having to surmount the econ issues, the foreign policy debates that we haven't even covered, the polarization, navigating that would be so difficult. I just don't see anyone who could subs- who could subsume these issues in the 20s. There's no Lincoln, yeah. there's no FDR, there's no, yeah. you know, uh Reagan. That's that's the part there for me. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right in that it feels like sort of groundhog day and it's hard to <laughs> You know, it, it's it, it's it's hard to see how we break out of that. Um, you know, uh, so like uh, Ezra Klein's book, I don't know if you've seen the what, Why yes. We're Polarized, you might have read it. Yeah, he, you know, the thing he emphasizes, every actor in the system is sort of a- acting rationally. Um, and he keeps saying that, and he, you know, his, uh, he doesn't really have a solution to it. It's a solution is basically, I think, something along the lines of make Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. states, and then, you know. The, <laughs> Change the chessboard. It's, it, it, that makes sense. And you know that makes sense for him. Well, you got to get through the Senate now, as it is. So, so good luck. Yeah. You're stuck. You're stuck with that. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Like, I think there's dy- dynamism in American society. I mean, some people have you know said there's positive things going on with you know the, like the price of us, uh, you know, uh, solar panels, electric cars, um, you know, biotechnological breakthroughs. Uh, there's there was just just a startup I saw on a, uh, trying to get a, a supersonic aircraft up in the air. You know, there's there's exciting wow, stuff that's going cool. on. Um, it's just, uh, it's just not, in, not in Washington, unfortunately. And sometimes <laughs> it actually not having Washington screw with things, you know, is, is actually, is actually things can take off, you know? Um, uh, so yeah, I think there's dynamism, dynamism in American society. If you look at like, uh, you know, the stock market and stuff, American, uh, treasuries, you know, the people are, people are optimistic. They think that things are going to go along and people are going to have their pro wrestling politics. If you want meaning from politics, if you want it to be somehow beautiful or aesthetically pleasing <laughs> or something that brings us on together, like this is like uh, Obama's vision. West wing, West wing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you will have a bad 10 to 20 years. I think <laughs> just, you know, if you could just take a step back and just sort of look at, um, you know, look at, uh, you know, uh, society as a whole and sort of forget about politics, you know, we, we might be okay. You might be more optimistic. So for all the people on Capitol Hill who listen to this podcast, quit your job and go into the private sector. That's what Richard <laughs> is trying to do. Well, if you're one of the good yeah. ones, you, you, yeah. you, you, could ha- you could imagine. Right, right, so right. Sorry. Bad. Let me clarify. For those of you who are not there to post Instagrams about how cool you are for your friends back home by right on Capitol Hill and are there to actually get any shit done, I would advise you to leave. Well, I mean, one uh, thing I worry, yeah, I'll just say that one thing I do worry about, though, is, is uh, unforeseen threats that actually require a government response. COVID-19, I mean, is the is oh, clear yeah. example oh, of this. Yeah. We're screwed. So we just better hope that there's not stuff like that, <laughs> on the, you know, on the, on the horizon that actually requires government, you know, letting sort of markets and technology do their thing. You know, it's yeah. a, if, if, as long as we don't have any of those for unforeseen events, you know, I think we'll be, we'll be fine. Well said, Richard. Uh, it's been an incredible episode, man. Challenge all of our priors. Um, just some really great analysis. Can you just tell people where to find you? Um, Twitter, uh, your organization, all of that. 
Uh, sure, yeah. My uh, Twitter handle is just my name, uh, Richard Hanani. I have a Substack that's also just my name. Um, and then, then uh, I'm the founder of uh, Center for Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Our website is csbicenter.org. You can also um, follow us on Twitter at CSPI Center, and uh, you can find the um, the uh, report there where we talked about um, the national the national. Party. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll put a link to all of that stuff. But that's just Twitter and csbicenter.org. Cool. Thanks for coming, Thank you. Seriously. Yeah, pleasure. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Also wanted to throw in a huge thank you to everyone who has supported the show, especially when we literally doubled the amount of content we're throwing at you every single week. When we did that, we weren't quite sure whether or not our download would collapse, whether people would think that we were doing too many episodes, but we've been doing better and better every month, and we really appreciate you all sticking with us. As Sagar pointed out at the top of the episode, we'll be doing bigger and greater things going into the new year, so we're really excited. Huge thank you. And if you could subscribe to the podcast, send this to your friends and family when you're with them during the holidays, and subscribe to our Substack at therealignment.substack.com. We'd really appreciate it. Last but not least, a huge thank you to Lincoln Network, which has done the amazing job of supporting the show. No questions asked this entire year. We really, really, really appreciate it. See you next year.